of paper and on it was listed uh, a Corona movie playlist. And so this was a, a list of, of movies that our family was intending to watch uh, while we're sheltering in place. And of course, many of you probably have your own movie list. I mean, what else are you going to do while you shelter in place except for binge Netflix, you know, and whatnot? And uh, of course, why do we do that uh, during this time? Well, one is just to fight boredom. You know, if we spend a lot of time indoors, uh, I think the other reason is is just to escape from all of kind of like the, the news of the chaos around us. And sometimes we just need to withdraw from that and sort of escape for a little bit. Uh, we watched Frozen 2 the other day, and it was just a wonderful escape from the realities of uh, COVID-19. It was so much more fun to uh, watch uh, Frozen 2. But, you know, when we gather together around God's word, I, I think, um, and, and we gather for worship in this way, I think the danger can be for you is to think that at this point, what we're doing is we're kind of uh, doing what we do when we watch a movie. We are withdrawing from the realities of the world for a while in order to kind of escape. But listen, this space, this moment is not about escaping the realities of the world. This is really about taking the cares and the realities of this world into the presence of God and asking God to speak to us about the very real world we live in. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a story that speaks to us about the very real world that we live in. And I just want to invite you to pray with me as we ask God to speak to us during this time. Father, we pray that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak. And we ask, God, that your voice would be louder than all of the other voices around us. We pray, oh God, that you would break through the anxiety and the fear and the worry that might exist in our heart. And we pray that your word of peace would go down deep and that your peace would transform us and root us in your love. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So uh, this morning, we're actually beginning a new series together entitled Anchored. And what we're going to do throughout this series is, is explore how we can stay anchored in God's love and peace in the midst of these very turbulent times. And uh, so to kind of kick off this series, uh, I want to share with you from a story that's very familiar to many of you. If you grew up in church, you probably saw this one on the flannel graph. Uh, you've heard sermons on this. Uh, but it's a story, although it's very familiar, it's one that I feel like is so appropriate for this moment. And I've been thinking a lot about this story all week long. And it's, it's a story that I think uniquely speaks to us in this moment. It's a story about a fearful and vulnerable disciples who are stuck in a chaotic storm unlike any they had ever experienced before. Uh, they are subject to powerful forces outside of their control. And it's a story about Jesus's presence and power in the midst of the chaos. And so I want to invite you to join with me as we just briefly walk through this story and see what it says to us about these very turbulent, chaotic times that we are in right now. 
Well, the story takes, it begins in Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and it begins like this. It says, and on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Notice it begins by saying, and on that day. On what day? Well, this is a day that Jesus had been teaching his disciples and the crowds. And on that day, he went out in a little boat and it created something of a natural amphitheater for the crowds. And he disclosed truth about the kingdom of God in these parables. And the very last parable, or one of the last parables, he spoke to them about how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that when it grows, becomes like a tree that fills the entire earth. And then Jesus, after telling these parables, he says to his disciples, let's go to the other side. Now, I want to just show you where this is. So they're over here kind of in this region of Capernaum, and they're going to go over to the other side, which is uh, the Decapolis, which is the region of the Gentiles. And so do you see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, look, we are going to go to the other side, and I'm going to take the good news of the kingdom to the Gentile people, to, to a new territory. And so here the kingdom of God is expanding and it's growing like a mustard seed. Well, notice what it says. He goes on and it says, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them into the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So the Sea of Galilee is a beautiful, beautiful sea. This is a picture of the Sea of Galilee, a couple stand-up paddleboarders. This actually is taken from the ancient world when they did have stand-up paddleboards. Um, but um, so the, the Sea of Galilee is the deepest part of the Northern Jordan Rift. And it's 700 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by these steep cliffs and these mountains. And often cool air from the mountains interact with the warm water from the sea and it creates these tremendous, turbulent and sometimes surprising violent storms and seas. And here, uh, one of these storms kicks up out of the blue while they're out there, and the disciples are absolutely terrified. You know, I read uh, some stories uh, of the seas of Galilee reaching upwards of 30 feet, and the disciples, no doubt, are in a storm, something like that. They're in a 26-foot boat, and they're in these gigantic seas, and it's violent, and it's turbulent, and it is out of their control, and they're absolutely terrified. And, uh, the, and, and the boat is filling and they think it's going to sink. And the question they are asking is, where is Jesus? You know, here they are on the sea and where is Jesus? And look at what it says. He was in the stern asleep on a cushion. So where is Jesus in the middle of the storm? Jesus is in the stern of the boat asleep on a cushion. He's I love that detail. He's asleep on a cushion. You know, in the Swanson household, there's two different kinds of naps. Uh, we have the cat nap, which is, you know, um, it's about a 15, 20-minute nap. Uh, the, the curtains or the blinds stay open. Uh, we don't turn on the air purifier. You lay down on top of the covers, and you kind of just close your eyes for 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, but then uh, there's, there's, there's not the cat nap. There's the true and the honest nap. And this is where the shades go down. The air purifier comes on. We go underneath the covers 
slumbers and we go into a deep, long sleep. Well, here Jesus has brought out the cushions and he is ready to go into a deep, long nap. Now, why is it that Jesus is asleep? Why does he go to sleep in the storm? Well, one answer to that question is that Jesus is exhausted. You know, have you ever been so exhausted? Have you ever been so tired that you felt like you could fall asleep anywhere? Well, this is Jesus. He has been wandering from village to village. He teaches all day long, multiple times in a row. He's expended energy healing and performing exorcisms and and healings with the crowds and he's traveling. And so here the body of Jesus, the son of God is absolutely spent. He's exhausted. And we just imagine him collapsing on his cushion and falling into a deep sleep. Now, I want you to note here just the humanity of Jesus. Why does Jesus sleep? He sleeps because Jesus is truly human. And notice his humanity is replete throughout this story. He says to his disciples, uh, he doesn't say to them, let me sprinkle pixie dust on you and we can fly to the other side of the lake. No, Jesus says, let's get in the boat and we've got to get to the other side of the lake. He's limited by his own humanity because he is full and true humanity. You know, in the early church, there were two uh, different heresies that constantly were creeping out, kind of cropping up and arising. And then the first was the heresy of the Arians, and the second was the heresy of the Docetists. Uh, If you're looking for for some important terms to stick into your pandemic survival guard, it's these two, uh, Arianism and Docetism. And so uh, the Arians, uh, what they said was that Jesus was true man, uh, but he was less than God. On the other hand, the docetist, the word docetist, uh, it comes from the Greek word dikeo, which means to seem. And what they said is that Jesus was true divinity, but he only seemed to be humanity. But in contrast to both of these heresies, uh, the early Christians in line with the scripture declared that Jesus was truly man and truly God. He was full humanity and full deity. And so Jesus sleeps because Jesus is true and full humanity. But why does Jesus sleep? Well, he not only sleeps because he's exhausted, Jesus can sleep because Jesus has full trust in his Father. I was listening to a sermon uh, a while back by a very well-known, famous preacher, and this preacher said... um, uh, he, he said that he, could, he, he, it was actually a sermon on sleep. And he, he, he started talking about how every night he just, his head hits the pillow and he falls into a deep sleep and he sleeps all the way through the night. And I thought that's in contrast to how my sleep often goes. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night and then I'm agonizing and I'm thinking about, you know, oh, my children. And now I'm thinking about the economy and the church and the future and the, the virus and everything. And, and, and it just disrupts, it disturbs my sleep. And then the preacher said, uh, he said, I think my good sleep is a reflection of my good theology. And I thought, well, I think my bad sleep is a reflection of my bad theology. And what he meant by that was that he said, he said, look, I believe that God is in control. And so I can cease worrying about the world. I can cease worrying about my problems for the night because if I stop worrying, the world will keep on spinning and God will stay on the throne. 
Well, Jesus in our text has good theology, and so he falls asleep in the middle of the storm. Well, the disciples don't appreciate that at all. <laughs> Look at what it says next. It says, and so they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I was looking at some artwork uh, of uh, this, this uh, biblical story uh, on the internet this week, and I came across this image, which I really loved kind of the, the artistry of it. I loved kind of the, the way it was depicted. I loved the colors. Uh, but the thing that, that I thought was just kind of humorous is the way uh, the disciples are depicted here. On, on the one hand, you have probably John, you know, down here, and he's cowering down. He's freaked out. You know, he's just terrified down here. And then you have Peter, and he kind of looks like he's just walking carefully up to Jesus. He's like, uh, I hate to disturb you, master, but can you wake up and help us out? Well, that's not the depiction we have in our story at all. The disciples are absolutely freaked out. And this is, they're, they're intense and, and they're questioning. They're saying, don't you even care about us? You know, Jesus, do something. Well, Jesus stands and Jesus delivers. He awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea. And he said, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Jesus rebukes the wind and he speaks to the sea. I mean, just stop and think about that for a minute. I mean, Jesus talks to the wind and the, he speaks to a hurricane the way I talk to my dog Brutus. You know, sit, stay. And you know, when I command Brutus, I only, my commands are met with only moderate success. But here Jesus speaks and his words calm the sea and there is sheet glass so that you can look out and just see your face as in a mirror. And then he turns to his disciples and he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus looks at his disciples and he said, why are you so afraid? And it's ironic, isn't it? Uh, it says after he calms the sea, once the storm that threatened their life is gone, it says they were even more afraid. Why? Well, because the only thing more terrifying than the storm outside of the boat is this man inside of the boat whose very voice commands the sea and the wind. You know, there's echoes in this story of an earlier story in the Bible, the story of Jonah. And there are all these parallels uh, between Jesus and Jonah. Uh, Jesus, like Jonah, is a prophet from Israel called to take the message of good news to the Gentiles. And Jesus, like Jonah, goes into a ship and goes into the very heart of it and then falls asleep. And then Jesus, like Jonah, is awoken by terrified seamen who are freaked out that they're gonna die. And then Jesus, like Jonah, is awoken with the words, don't you care that we're perishing? But you know, that is where the parallels cease. In the story of Jonah, it is Jonah who's thrown overboard and it is God and God alone whose power stills the storm. But here Jesus steps into the very place of God 
Here, Jesus, who is fully human, is also fully God. And with divine authority, he commands the wind and the seas. Here, Jesus, he doesn't use a wand like Dumbledore or a staff like Gandalf. Rather, he speaks. And in the presence of this voice, the dark, chaotic seas tremble and cease. And the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So that's the story. And now what I want to do is I just want to stand back and I want us just to reflect on how this story might speak to us in the midst of this crisis, this very difficult kind of chaotic, uncontrollable time that we find ourselves in. And I just want to make a couple observations with you. Number one, I want to make an observation about this storm. So let's talk for a minute about the storm. So the storm is a part of God's created world. And you know, when you see the wind and the waves, the wind and the waves are not doing anything wrong on the one hand, right? I mean, the wind and the waves are doing what wind and waves do. And you know, there's something beautiful and majestic and exquisite about wind and waves, isn't there? I mean, I have spent the good part of my life finding delight and joy when wind blows over vast expanse of the ocean and there is energy that's created and that energy moves through the ocean and it creates these waves and then those waves hit sandbars and coral reefs and they form into these beautiful waves and a surfer can harness those waves and drop into them, you know, and pull into a big barrel or something, you know, but, but waves are exquisite and they're beautiful. And so on the one hand, what is happening here? Well, creation is just doing what creation does. It is being beautiful and majestic, but you know, there's something else happening in this story. Listen, the wind and the waves in our story are not benign. They are chaotic and they're scary and they look to sink the ship and Jesus and his disciples and his mission. Now, just think with me for a minute. Where has Jesus been in his ministry up to this point? Well, if you haven't been tracking with the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, which I don't expect that you have, we're just jumping in today. Uh, Jesus has been doing his work among the Jews in the region of Capernaum. And now Jesus is going to cross over the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go into the territory of the Gentiles. And do you know the very first person Jesus is going to meet when he gets on the other side of the lake? Jesus is going to meet the scariest dude in the Bible. He is a demonized man who is chained up and naked and cutting himself, and he's living in a graveyard, and the disciples get there at night. And Jesus encounters this person, and he frees him from his demons, and he brings healing into his life. And this man who is transformed by the reconciling, healing love of God then becomes the first witness to the love of Jesus among the Gentiles. This is what's at stake. This is why Jesus is going over to the other side of the lake because Jesus wills life and healing and freedom and for the good news to go out. And yet here, the wind and the waves stand in contradiction to what Jesus wills. In other words, the creation that is good, that's beautiful and exquisite, is also alienated and fallen and broken. And here, it stands against God's good will for life. Listen, 
creation is good, but it's broken. It is but a shadowy remnant of the world God intends. And the world as it stands now is estranged from God and it's enslaved to spiritual and earthly powers that are hostile to God. And so the Bible itself says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so what do you say? Well, what are you saying, Josh? That the, the lake that Jesus was on was demonized, that it was possessed by a demon? You know, it's interesting. Uh, there was another piece of art that I came across. And this artwork actually depicts kind of that idea that in somehow this storm was stirred up uh, by forces that were acting against uh, the will and the force of Jesus. And if you look closely at this image, there are these little uh, black, it looks like demonic creatures riding on the top of pigs, diving into the ocean, which calls to the story of uh, the man who is uh, demonized, the demons are excised, and then they fall into the ocean. But the idea is, is that there is something dark and sinister and larger going on. And listen, you know, I think we can look around at what we are going through right now in our world. And on the one hand, what is happening? Well, on the one hand, you know, viruses, bacteria, they are a part of God's world. And they can actually serve a good purpose in the world. But they can also come against God's purpose for life and well-being and wholeness. And, you know, economic systems, God wills economic systems to serve human flourishing. God wills, you know, medical systems and God wills, um, you, know, you know, the way we operate politically and in our governments to serve human well-being. And this is all God's intention for creation. But sometimes those systems themselves can actually be broken and, and they can actually be forces of destruction that threaten our own life and well-being and wholeness in God's world. And this is what we see happening in our text. Creation that is good has become alienated. It's estranged and it's actually coming against God's will to bring the good news out, God's will for the life of the disciples, for their own physical well-being, for their economic well-being. And there are other forces at work that are threatening to destroy them. You know, listen, sometimes when tragedy strikes, we in the church fall on cleep, cheap, cleep, I was going to say cleep, she, she shays. Um, see, look, I even stumble over my words on film or on camera or whatever. Um, but sometimes in the church, we do fall back on very cheap cliches. Well, you know, everything happens for a reason, you know, and, and the idea is, is, is that we think God is just up in heaven and he's just orchestrating everything on earth all according to his will. But you know, in the Bible, we're actually told to pray that God's will would be done on earth as in heaven which implies that God's will is often not being done on earth. There are wills at work that are contrary to God's will. And so though God is in control, though the world is not spinning out outside of his control, there are forces of darkness at work in this world that threaten to undo the wholeness that God wills for this world. And so we see something about kind of like our current situation in this storm. And so we, we can note something about the storm. But what I want you to really notice in our text is Jesus's response to the storm. 
How does Jesus respond to the storm? Well, the first thing that he does is he falls asleep in the storm, which of course is very different from how the disciples respond to the storm. How did the disciples respond to the storm? They don't respond by being at rest and going to sleep. They freak out and, and they are completely terrified. And we know why they are freaked out and terrified, though Jesus is asleep. They are terrified because things have totally fallen outside of their control. You know, again, going back to this image here, you know, here uh, Simon Peter looks like he's so calm and collected. But he wasn't calm and collected, he was freaked out. And I don't know how many of you have been feeling this way, but um, when I am kind of binge reading news, like I can't stop reading about this stuff. I've become a COVID-19 expert. Like, and in fact, um, I have all of the answers as to what the government should be doing right now. And I will freely share those opinions of mine, which of course are arrogant and, and probably full of ignorance as well. But uh, many of you know what I'm talking about. You've been reading about this stuff. And, and, and sometimes we think if we just know enough about it, we can control it. But of course, we know this is so far outside of our control. And there's nothing that creates anxiety and fear in us more than when it seems like the world is spinning outside of our control. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. And so I grew up, you know, with this deep-seated fear that the big one was going to come, you know, that San Andreas Fault was finally going to shift and that we were going to experience, you know, like a 9.5 earthquake and it was going to, you know, the earth was going to open up and it was going to swallow, you know, the small school children. And so we lived in this constant fear and terror of this big one. But, and then, and then every time, you know, ever since then, like anytime there's been any kind of minor earthquake or whatever and the earth begins to shake, like I'm immediately struck with fear. And do you know what terrifies me about it? Is that there is nothing I can do. I like being in control. When, I, when I'm in a car, I like to be driving the car because I like to be in control of the car. And when we're listening to the radio, I like to be in control of the radio because, you know, I, I feel better when the world is underneath my control. Don't you? And look, the disciples are terrified because they have no control over the storm. But you know, Jesus can sleep in the midst of the storm. I love the, the image of Jesus here. He's so soundly asleep because he recognizes that someone is in control that is far more important than us. That the Father is in control and Jesus is constantly teaching us to trust in the care and the love of our Father. Jesus walked around saying things like this. He said, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't reap or sow, and yet your father feeds them. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a day to your life? And do you see what Jesus is saying? And it wasn't because Jesus' life was just cush. I mean, the, the first century world, I mean, the pestilence, the disease, the plagues they faced, the economic uncertainty, the difficulties of their life. I mean, our experience now pales in comparison. And yet in spite of that, Jesus could say, your father loves you. God is in control. You can trust him and you can go to bed at night and fall asleep. 
So how does Jesus respond to the storm? Well, number one, Jesus sleeps in the midst of the storm. But secondly, I want you to see Jesus not only sleeps in the storm, but secondly, I want you to see that Jesus stands and he rebukes the storm. Jesus, in essence, does battle with this storm. You know, you can think about the storm that's arising is like an enemy intruder coined after to threaten the life of Jesus's disciples to put an end to Jesus's mission. And Jesus, he goes to battle against this great threat to his mission and to the well-being of his disciples. And Jesus stands and he rebukes, he confronts, he, he goes after this storm. And listen, Listen, every, every time somebody gets up and they, they join into the medical force and they go to work each day as a nurse or a doctor, they are standing with Jesus, as it were, to, to, to go after, to rebuke this deadly disease that against, that's against God's will for life. Every time you, you bring a meal to somebody in, in, who's, who's, who's shut in, who's afraid to leave their own home, and so you go and you stand in line at the grocery store and you pick up those items or maybe you share something that you have with them, you are fighting against those forces of scarcity and fear and hoarding and selfishness that are, are, are against God's will for life and generosity and wholeness in this world. And look, every time you choose to stay home and reach out to your friends over Skype or Facebook or uh, FaceTime or whatever, any other way, rather than go out and just kind of spread your germs around the world over against you know, what we've been asked to do, but, but you confine yourself, even though it goes against everything you want to do and you're, you're washing your hands, in some sense, you are standing with Jesus and his will for life and you are standing against those forces of death around us and people who are working with the homeless and, and, and people who are, who are stepping into difficult places right now, you know, in order to save life right now and to care for people and to ensure that needs are met, when we do that, we are fighting against those forces of darkness in this world that threaten human life. You know, one of my uh, favorite lines in a song is from an artist called Bruce Coburn. And he says this, he says, nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. You gotta kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. And you know, sometimes you gotta just keep kicking back the darkness until the light of God's love and human well-being break in. I think my favorite scene in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, or in that whole trilogy, is toward the end of the series in the third and the final volume, the third and final movie, it's where Aragorn is mustering the troops against the black gates of Mordor. And they are in a situation that looks absolutely helpless. You know, they're, they're looking around and it looks like economic collapse. It looks like nobody's gonna be able to stop a virus. It looks like the forces of Mordor are gonna win, you know. And, and, and they're literally surrounded by all of this darkness. And Aragorn stands up and he says this, Hold your ground, hold your ground, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. And then he says this, a day may come when the courage of men falls, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. 
An hour of wolves and shattered fields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. You know, and there's a sense in which in this story, Jesus stands up in defiance to fight against the forces of darkness. And it's just a window of what Jesus is doing throughout his entire life and ministry. He is bringing the force of God's kingdom and life and love and justice and healing into this world. And he is doing battle with the forces of darkness. And he stands and he invites us to stand with him against all of these forces. And so in the midst of the crisis we are in, number one, we are invited by Jesus to sleep to take space and to go to bed and to quiet your mind because God is on the throne. God is in control. He is your father. You belong to him. You can trust him. Go to sleep and then wake up and stand. Stand with Jesus and do battle with his force of love and life and sacrificial giving to do good in this world, to help and to serve. And listen, there's one more thing, and we'll just close with this. Jesus not only is asleep in the storm, and Jesus not only rebukes the storm, I I just want to close by noting this. I just want you to notice that Jesus is in the storm. This story, in some ways, it gives us really a window into the wonder and the mystery that stands at the heart of Christianity. And that wonder and mystery is that God doesn't simply stand back and as, you know, the eternal unblinking stare in the sky, you know, just watch us and watch the storms that are going down on life. Nor does God simply orchestrate the storms that are going on in this world. What this story reveals is that God actually comes into our world in the incarnation this world that is alienated and estranged from God, God in Christ enters into and he becomes one with, he attaches himself to our world in the incarnation. He becomes one of us. And then he he enters with us into the most darkest and the turbulent of times through these storms that are uncontrollable, these forces that stand against God's will for life. He plunges himself into the midst of it. And of course, this is just, it's just a a, a glimmer of the way in which God will enter into the very heart of the storm in the death of Jesus. When Jesus will be subject to all of the forces of darkness and chaos around him, to the political chaos, to the injustice, uh, to to the forces of darkness that betray him, that crucify him, that hang him to die in nakedness and shame on the cross so that through his self-giving love, he might reconcile an alienated world to himself. So that ultimately what we might know is God's reconciling love in Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer and it is my hope that your heart and your life would be anchored to God's reconciling love in Jesus Christ. And that you will be able to sleep tonight in that love. And tomorrow wake up and to become an agent of his reconciling love through simple ways in which you reach out with his love in the midst of this broken world in this very broken time. 
May God give us the strength and power to do that as a community together. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer this morning together that you would open up our eyes so that we could see the wonder and the beauty of the incarnation and of your reconciling love. Oh God, would our hearts be anchored in this good news in the midst of the turbulence we are experiencing? And would you enable us in little ways, in big ways, to be agents of your reconciling love in the midst of this world? And we ask this for the glory of your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would do this in our lives by the power of your spirit. Amen.